Hello from the newsroom of the Financial Times in London. I'm Katie Martin. Justin Trudeau swept into power in Canada in 2015, championing equality, openness and social justice. But the resignation of his Attorney General, who alleged she had faced pressure to go easy on one of the country's biggest companies in a corruption case, has dented this image. Nikki Blazina discusses the case and what it means for Trudeau and the Liberal Party with Ravi Matu and Amy Williams. Amy, tell us first about the company involved, SNC-Lavalin. Well, the company has a few different things, but it's broadly an engineering company that works mainly with mining and energy services. So in this case, it's been accused of bribing Libyan officials around the time when Gaddafi was in power. This is not its first brush with bribery allegations. The World Bank has actually blacklisted its main subsidiary from bidding on projects under its own global corruption policy, and that happened in 2013, over a project it was working on in Bangladesh. The key thing about the company in this story is that it employs around 9,000 people across Canada. Most of those are in Quebec, which is the home for Justin Trudeau's constituency in Montreal. What was the Attorney General's involvement? Well, Jodie Wilson-Raybould, the Attorney General, she was in a position to come up with a prosecution agreement with the company that would basically have seen them settle out of court, avoiding huge fines. So it basically would have paid some money but been allowed to keep trading and avoid big court fees and big legal costs that would have put them out of business. And who does she say put her under pressure to agree to a deferred prosecution agreement? And why did she end up resigning? Well, she said that it was several people in Mr. Trudeau's government, specifically in his office, and including Mr. Trudeau himself and, crucially, his top advisor, Gerald Butts. Her resignation is a bit murky and a little unclear, but what we do know is that shortly before she resigned, Mr. Trudeau effectively demoted her in a cabinet reshuffle, and this caused quite a bit of upset. She initially refused to take the first portfolio that she was offered. So she was Attorney General and Justice Minister. Mr. Trudeau tried to move her to Indigenous Services, which she declined. She eventually ended up at Veterans Affairs, and she shortly afterwards resigned. What has Mr. Trudeau said about this? Mr. Trudeau and also his advisor, Mr. Butts, who uh, gave testimony to the Canadian House of Commons, have both said that they did not try to force Ms. Wilson-Raybould to make any kind of decision. They just asked her to take independent advice and get a second opinion on her decision because they thought it was a really important case and lots of jobs were at stake. Mr. Trudeau has insisted, he spoke to journalists the day after Mr. Butts gave testimony, he insisted that he was only ever trying to defend jobs. That's all he's ever tried to do, and that 9,000 jobs is really quite a lot of jobs to be lost. I know you've all been wanting to hear from me directly on the SNC-Lavalin issue. I've taken time to review the testimony, to reflect on what has happened over the past months, and on what our next steps should be. What has become clear through the various testimonies is that over the past months, there was an erosion of trust between my office and specifically my former principal secretary and the former Minister of Justice and Attorney General. I was not aware of that erosion of trust as Prime Minister and leader of the federal ministry, I should have been. In regards to standing up for jobs and defending the integrity of our rule of law, I continue to say that there was no inappropriate pressure. Bearing in mind that elections are coming up in October, how has this all gone down with Canadian voters? Broadly, they don't like it. Mr. Trudeau's 
popularity has taken a hit and it's not looking all that good for him as the elections approach. However, in Quebec, the province where Montreal is, people are less bothered about this. And actually, his popularity is, is kind of held up in Quebec. They're a little more sympathetic to the view that jobs were at stake. Around 3,000 of those 9,000 jobs are in Quebec, and they are less unhappy with Mr. Trudeau's alleged actions. Ravi, you've written that Mr. Trudeau is partly to blame for setting impossibly high standards. Can you explain what you mean? Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of things there. I think, first of all, one needs to go back and understand why he won and how he won the election in 2013 to become prime minister. We need to remember that Mr. Trudeau wasn't actually expected to win. He was in third place, trailing two other party leaders, and played a blinder in the campaign and suddenly became prime minister with a massive majority. And I think the first mistake they made was to misunderstand their mandate. They thought the massive majority meant they had license to invoke a massive program of change. In fact, because they won by surprise and by good fortune in that voters had got fed up with the incumbent Stephen Harper, they didn't realize that there was a bit of a delicate balance to achieve there. The second bit was they won on the back of a very progressive agenda. Mr. Trudeau had a great brand. He sold himself as a modern politician who was advertising a more kind, a more gentle a more open way of governing and dealing with politics, rather than the very fractious way things are done in many other places, including at times in Canada. But by holding himself to that standard, he also needs to meet that standard in government. Now, for the first few years, that kind of worked. He did very well on certain policy issues. He accepted 25,000 Syrian refugees into the country from the war, which is a very popular move both within Canada and internationally. But further into government, he made some missteps, partly, I would argue, because of the hubris that came with that stunning election victory. First of all, he started to do things that flew in the face of that cleaner than clean impression he was giving. For example, in 2016, he fell foul of ethics rules for taking a private family holiday on the private island of the Aga Khan, the billionaire religious leaders. Not only did that contravene the rules in place for politicians, but it just looked really bad. It looked very elitist when he had told the world that he was anything but. Similarly, in terms of the people he put in place around him, Amy mentioned Gerald Butts, who was his closest advisor, but Mr. Butts was also his best friend. They'd known each other for 30 years since they met at McGill University. And invariably, when you put your best friend in your office as your closest advisor, even the smartest person in the world will find it impossible to separate the personal and the professional. And that was certainly the impression given. And that chumminess once again went to undercut pretty severely the progressive agenda, that open kind of politics that he advertised when he campaigned for office and indeed in the early years of his tenure. So you've already touched on this a bit, but looking towards the next election and how he's starting to campaign now, what would you say are his notable achievements and what are his failures? Well, a couple of things. I mean, he has achieved a few things. I talked about the Syrian refugee policy. He's also legalized cannabis, which was a big campaign promise of his. And he certainly tried to create a different impression of how politics can be done. But if you count all the things where he failed to necessarily meet the targets he set. They include reforming the electoral system. He hasn't done that. Finding a way of building a pipeline from the oil sands of northern Alberta to the Pacific coast of BC. He hasn't done that. 
reconciling relations with the indigenous populations. He hasn't achieved that. So there are a litany of these things where he set very ambitious goals that he just didn't achieve. And so I think, unfortunately, while he has made some serious achievements, such as renegotiating the NAFTA agreement with Donald Trump, there are also a number of failures that his opponents will hold against him. And how well placed is Canada's opposition to capitalize on Mr. Trudeau's weaknesses? Well, going to the election, I think that's one of actually his advantages. So Amy mentioned that Mr. Trudeau's poll numbers have taken a hit. And yet the Liberal government, the Liberal Party, which he leads, still is more or less neck and neck with the opposition conservatives. And I think one of the things that he has to his best advantage is the fact that his opposition rivals are relatively new leaders in their own right, and they suffer from their own credibility issues. So Andrew Scheer of the Conservatives and the leftist NDP's Jagmeet Singh are both quite new into the job, and they too are having some issues around trying to prove to the public that there are credible alternatives. So in terms of how well the opposition can capitalize on it, they're doing their best to make sure this stays in the news. They're making sure that it's very hard for the government to talk about anything else. Every press conference that happens, invariably the attention turns to this topic around the SNC-Lavalin scandal and the resignation. So it's very hard to change the agenda. However, the weakness of the opposition does give Mr. Trudeau, who remains a very charming character and someone who can certainly connect with people, gives him a plausible chance going into the October election. So, Amy, what happens with the SNC-Lavalin case after this? Well, Jody Wilson-Raybould's decision was to not offer them prosecution agreement, which means that they have to go to trial. So there's already a hearing underway, and a criminal trial will probably happen within a year. Yes, and to add to what Amy said, although Wilson-Raybould has made sure this is going to trial, from what it seems, the political story hasn't ended. There's a lot of pressure on the top civil servant in Canada, who's also been drawn into the affair and his role. There are further questions the opposition is raising about whether the whole process of how cases like this are handled is inappropriate, and whether, in fact, uh, an independent third party should adjudicate over the process. So the politics is obviously very strong and carrying on, and the opposition is going to do their best to make sure this stays in the headlines. And of course, our media colleagues are watching it very closely in Canada too. That was Nikki Blazina talking to Ravi Matu and Amy Williams. Thanks for listening. Remember, if you're not already a subscriber and you would like to discover more FT content, you can find our latest subscription offers at ft.com slash offer.